want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. That's where we're going to pick things up. If you've been with us through the summer, you know that we've been walking through uh, this book and uh, didn't quite line all the weeks up here. We're, we're going to wrap this up when I get back in early September. didn't quite make it here before I'm gone, but that's okay. Um, we're picking things up at verse 6 uh, here in a moment. I want to begin with an illustration, a story, if you will. This is hypothetical. Honestly, it is. Um, I want you to imagine a husband and wife, a marriage, and early one week, the husband tells his wife that he is going to take her on a date on Friday night. Uh, they haven't been out for a while without kids, and so there's a certain measure of excitement that she feels through the week. And Friday comes, and she uh, eagerly waits their evening out. He's going to take her to her favorite restaurant for dinner. And uh, she's upstairs getting ready, and she hears her husband come in downstairs, and she knows that they're leaving soon. And she very excitedly comes down, and, and she sees on the counter that he's brought her flowers, but, but they've just been kind of dumped unceremoniously on the, the counter. He's plunked himself down in front of the TV where he's watching sports or something. He, he, he takes her out. They go and drive. It's quiet. They drive to this restaurant, and uh, he takes her in. He says, order whatever you want. It's your favorite restaurant. Get whatever you want. And then he sits there with his arms crossed, really not all that engaged, more interested in what's going on at the tables around them and the TV that he can see in the bar. How do you think that woman, that wife, would feel? I mean, he's taken her out for a date. He, he, he's taken her to her favorite restaurant. He said, hey, order whatever you want. She's, she's able to order her, her favorite meal. But, but how, how do you imagine she would feel in that scenario? There's a problem, right? There's a problem because this husband is, he's, he's, he's checking a box, but he's, he's not engaged with his wife. He's not loving his wife. He's not cherishing his wife. There's no indication that he's really valuing her. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is not a passage about marriage. It's not a passage about dating or what not to do when you go on a date. I share this, though, because this illustration can help us prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us. Prepare our hearts for where this passage will lead us. It can help us to think more deeply about what is going on in this text than we might otherwise grasp. On the surface, the passage that we are looking at this morning appears to be about money, about God wanting some of your money, about tithing. It's almost a bad word sometimes, right? Many people think, oh, the church just wants your money. It, at, on the surface, that's what this passage would seem to be about. But I want to contend this morning that, that it's not actually ultimately about that, that topic. Yes, it, it speaks to tithing. Tithing uh, plays a central role here, but it is not the central issue. It is not... The, the central point of this text. 
And if we're not careful, we can miss what is the point. Just like the husband in my illustration misses the point of what it means to take your wife on a date. We can miss the point. We can miss what's central. We can miss what is at the core. And I want us to be wary of that and be attentive so that that does not happen this morning. Now, before I read the text, uh, let me review. For those of you who've been with us, you know this. Maybe I could get one of you to come up here and do this. But for anyone who's just joining us, I just want to bring you up to speed. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, the last of the minor prophets. Minor not because its message is insignificant, but because it's short in comparison to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, Malachi uh, comes on the scene. He prophesies in probably the the mid-5th century B.C., that is, during the post-exilic period. So what that means historically is that God's people, the nation of Israel, has already had their their glory years, if you will, under King David and King Solomon. The kingdom has been ripped into two, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. Uh, Because of their sin and rebellion, their idolatry, the, the nation of Israel in the north went into exile about probably 200, 250 years before Malachi comes on the scene, never to return, the ten lost tribes. The southern nation of Judah hung on a little bit longer until about 586, but because of their sin, their unfaithfulness, they went into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. But God promised through the prophets that he would return his people. And so about 70 years after that, uh, some Israelites return to the promised land. They return to Palestine. That's where Malachi comes in. They have returned. A portion of God's people have returned. But, but the population is a fraction of what it was before. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt, but it is a shadow of the glorious temple that Solomon had constructed. The wall is likely built by the time Malachi is on the scene, but most of Jerusalem, much of Jerusalem still lies in ruins. The, the people, the, the population is small. The people remain under foreign control, under the thumb of the Persians. And so all the promises of the prophets of this great return have not come to fruition. And the people are discouraged. They are, they are cynical. They, they're having trouble trusting that they have any kind of special relationship with God. Things are, are not good. And it's into that context that Malachi prophesies. And Malachi, you remember if you were with us, Malachi begins with God making this declaration, I have loved you. I have loved you, he speaks to his people. I have loved you and I love you still. Everything in this book that we have, we've walked through week after week after week is anchored to, it is, it is built on that foundation of God's declaration of his love for his people. I have loved you and I love you still. We need to remember that as we walk through this book. Now, from that point, if you've been with us, you recognize that week after week after week, Yahweh has been confronting Israel about the ways in which they are breaking covenant with him. The first week after that initial introduction, the the first week we looked at the fact that they're bringing in, in blatant violation of the law. They are bringing sacrificial animals to God that are blind and lame and diseased. They're bringing rejects that, that God has said, don't bring that. Bring in unblemished animals. And they're bringing rejects. Animals they would not even bring to a human governor. The, the next week, God confronts them on the fact that they are violating his design for marriage. They are, they're divorcing their wives. They're marrying pagan women who worship other gods. Two weeks ago, the last time I spoke 
We looked at a text in which Yahweh charges them with seven sins. There's this list. They're, they're practicing sorcery, adultery, perjury, defrauding workers, oppressing widows and orphans, depriving foreigners of justice. They are not living in the fear of the Lord. And I said, if you were here, that's not an exhaustive list. It's representative. It, God's just saying, look at the ways in which you continue to violate the covenant disobeying me, disregarding me, and living rebelliously. The one thing that should be overwhelmingly clear to us as readers of this text is that Israel's relationship with Yahweh is not in a good place. They are not living faithfully. And so we pick the text up. In chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along with me. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty." Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I want to walk through our text and unpack it by exploring things under four headings, four topics, if you will. First, the circumstances, their circumstances. Second, the symptom. Third, the issue, the central key issue. Fourth, the invitation and promise. And fifth, the result. Okay, so the circumstances, the symptom, the issue, the invitation and promise, and the result. Let's begin by looking at their circumstances. Malachi is speaking to a people, I just told you this, a people who have returned to the land, but things are not what they were expecting. The, the population is a fraction of what it was. Much of Jerusalem lies in ruins. They remain under foreign domination. We know all of that, but there's more that's going on. We know that they are experiencing economic hardship. They're in a depression, if you will. I'm going to say more about that in a moment, but that is implied in our text. As a nation, they are an agrarian people. That is, they farmed. They, there was no local Sobeys or Superstore to go to to pick up your groceries. You understand? Like, as, as someone who's always lived in a city... You know, where does bread come from and ground beef? Well, from Sobeys. But it doesn't. The, the, the bread they ate came from the wheat they grew. The, the ground beef that they ate, if they ate ground beef, came from the cattle that they raised. Right? Perhaps some of you, I know at least one of you, grew up on a farm as I look out this morning. But, but many of you probably, like me, grew up in the city. I always grew up in a city. I haven't even lived in a small town. And one thing that strikes me when I sit with people who are farmers. In fact, I had the privilege a number of years ago with our late brother Abe 
of going with him to Tofield and spending a day with him. We drove around and he showed me the town where he and Helen had lived for years, where they had farmed together for decades. He showed me the farm that they had been on. And, and when I'd hear him talk about farming and the many experiences, it becomes so clear that, you know, I talk about the weather f- far too much, I'm sure, but, but the weather does not impact my life in the way that it impacts a farmer. Probably for many of you who've grown up in the city, the same is true. If you're a farmer, you're so dependent on the rain, on getting uh, the right amount of moisture at the right time of year, and then it not being wet, too wet to harvest at different times. I don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but, but I, I realize so acutely when, when you sit and talk with a farmer, when you listen, how, how incredibly dependent they are on the weather. That's Israel. They are an agrarian people. They, they, they grow their food. Well, we can confidently surmise from verses 10 and 11 in our text that Israel is currently experiencing economic hardship because of the, the conditions, drought-like conditions. At minimum, they, they are experiencing insufficient moisture. And, and there are There are crop-devouring pests. That is implied by what is promised in our text. But I want to highlight something that is not just implied, but explicitly said in our text. Look with me at verse 9. You are under a curse. Your whole nation. Yahweh speaks this to His people. You are under a curse. Your whole nation. When... Israel first entered the promised land. Moses had given instructions that when they crossed the Jordan, they were to go to this place between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And six tribes were to stand on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, and six tribes were supposed to stand on the slopes of Mount Ebal. And between them was the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites. And the Levites, uh, with a loud voice, pronounced the covenant curses to which Israel responded, Amen, amen, amen after each curse. Now our text doesn't tell us what was almost certainly another part of that ceremony, and that was the the pronouncement of covenant blessings, and amen, amen, amen from the other mountain. God had spoken curses and blessings for them based on their covenant faithfulness. Here God says, you are under a curse, your whole nation. We can turn to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and read some of these curses. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy. The Lord will strike you. This is if you are unfaithful in the covenant. The Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew. The Lord will turn your, the rain of your country into dust and powder. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees through your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Leviticus, uh, God says, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. These are the covenant curses that God spoke to his people. If you are unfaithful, if you violate the covenant, these are the curses that you will be under. And here God pronounces you are under a curse. 
because of their unfaithfulness. And they experience that in a variety of ways, but certainly economically, this crop failure that they are dealing with. That is part of the circumstances of what they're going through as well. Let's turn to our second matter, and that is the symptom. I said earlier that that tithing is not the central issue in this text. If I were to ask, if I were to ask before I started talking today, what's this passage about? Probably most of us would have said, well, it's about tithing, because that seems to play a fairly central role in the text. And though it plays a prominent role, it has a significant place, I want to contend that that is not really the central matter. That is not what lies at the core of this text. It is a symptom. What's going on in in the matter of tithing is a symptom. It is what is visible. It is what gets our attention, but it is not the central thing. The accusation or charge issued by Yahweh to his people is that they are robbing him. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. So what, what is clear is that Israel is failing to bring the tithe to God. Now, there were many things that God's people were to give to God. If you read the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you'll read about all the various offerings, sacrifices that they were to bring. There's burnt offerings and grain offerings and fellowship offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings. There were free will offerings. There's all kinds of offerings that people bring. And at different festivals, Passover, they, they, they would bring other things. There's so much to bring, but, but one of the things that they are to bring, in addition to all the offerings and sacrifices, God's people were to bring a tithe to God. Now a tithe is, by definition, one-tenth of one's income. It was stipulated in God's law. It was not optional. It was a requirement of the law. Here's what Douglas Stewart, a New Testament scholar, says. He says, the tithing laws were not voluntary guidelines, They constituted a compulsory system and set forward a minimum expectation of 10% of one's income being paid to the temple for support of priests, Levites, temple singers, and servants, and for supplies and maintenance. This was part of God's law. His people were to bring 10%, not 8%. It wasn't optional. It wasn't like if you feel like it, if you've had a particularly good month. This was required of them. In verse 10, we read this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Just so we recognize this, by definition, a partial tithe is not a tithe. A tithe is 10%. Now, we see in our text that the people of God were being disobedient. They were being stingy with God. They were holding back. They were failing to bring the tithe as was stipulated in the law, as was expected. And Yahweh sees this. He calls it out as robbery. You are robbing me. Now, it's interesting to note here that God's people are called, uh, referred to as the descendants of Jacob. That's not language that is often used to describe them or or as a title for them. And, And perhaps here, part of what's going on is that there's a bit of a pun going on here. Jacob, descendants of Jacob. Jacob means deceiver, cheater. You are descendants of Jacob. You are robbing me. You are cheating me. The Bible makes it clear that 
Everything belongs to him. Everything. Thus, 100% of what the Israelites had, 100% of what they brought in, belonged to God. Therefore, if God was the owner of it all, and he stipulated that 10% of what he owned, they were to bring and designate it to him, then choosing not to do that was not not giving God some of your stuff. It was keeping stuff that was his, and, and God charges them with robbery. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? I would say that tithing or not tithing here is the symptom. It's not the central thing in this text, but it is clearly the visible thing in our text. By not tithing, Israel is robbing God. Now, let's pause for a moment. I want to just speak to you. What does this mean for us today practically? Though tithing is a significant topic here, it is not the central topic. But I want to say a couple things. First, tithing was part of the Old Testament Jewish law. As Christians, as those who are in Christ, we have been freed from the law. And I want to say that the New Testament does not have a command to tithe. Those things are both important for us to understand. We're not under the law, and Jesus has given us no new command to tithe. However, if we fixate on that fact that there's no New Testament command to tithe, then we are in danger of missing the point of this text. If we're looking to find out ways that we don't have to give to God, we're missing the point. Douglas Stewart puts it this way. He says, tithing per se is not a Christian requirement, not a stipulation of the new covenant, but financial giving positively is. Now that's fleshed out in different ways in the New Testament. But I'll say more about that as we move on. Let's, let's turn to our third topic, namely, what is central? What is the issue in this text? If tithing isn't the central issue, then, then what is is an important question for us to ask. And I want to say the central issue in our text is the relationship between God and His people. The central issue is the relationship between God and His people. Israel is guilty of disobedience. Israel is guilty. They are being unfaithful to God. They are rejecting Yahweh. They are rejecting His covenant stipulations. They are doing their own thing in their own way. And in doing that, they are doing what their ancestors have done. Listen to verse 7 as our text uh, near the beginning. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Do you see, Israel, these, these are God's chosen people. They are to be a nation of priests. That is, through them, the nations of the earth are to see the goodness of God, the grace and mercy of God. They, they are His special chosen people for that mission. But they are scorning Yahweh. They are disregarding Yahweh's commands. They, they have utterly rejected co the, the, the covenant that God entered into with them. And as such, Israel deserves only one thing, and that is their destruction. Yahweh says that. They deserve to be wiped out because they have rejected God. They have, they have scorned God. 
So here, the, the central issue here is, is not just tithing. It's the relationship with, with God. Do, do we think, after walking through Malachi to this point, that if they just ponied up 10%, that everything would be good? We can't possibly read this text and come to that conclusion. Of, of course not. Just, just, just coming up with 10% and going, okay, here you go. That, that does not satisfy what is missing here. It doesn't fix the problem. Tithing is a symptom of the utter brokenness of their relationship with Yahweh. They stand deserving God's judgment. Listen to verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Do you see? Do you see the glory of what God is there declaring? Do you see it? I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. They have been nothing but rebellious. They have, they have shown nothing but contempt to God. They deserve His punishment. They deserve His uh, destruction. Yet God holds open the door for Israel to repent. Remember how this book began. I love you and I, I love you still. God here holds open the door to Israel for them to repent. He holds open the door for Israel to come into His presence. Not because they deserve it, but because He is unchanging. Because He is unchanging. Because He, because of who He is, because of what He is like. He is a God who has declared, I have loved you. And I love you still. God is so full of mercy. God is so full of grace. God is so patient. He is so long-suffering. God's love is so enduring. Because He does not change. Because He is so full of mercy. Because He is so full of grace. Because He is so patient. Because He is so long-suffering. Because His love is so enduring, they're not destroyed. They deserve destruction. But God has not destroyed them because of who He is. Because He has not changed. He does not change. Theologically, the term for that is the immutability of God. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this God of mercy and grace and patient endurance and love is revealed most fully in the person of His Son, Jesus. In Jesus Christ, God put on flesh. And He came and He lived among us. He chose to be mistreated. He willingly laid down His life on the cross. He willingly bore the punishment that His people deserve, that we deserve for our rebellion, for our sin, because He is a God who is full of mercy, full of grace, and full of patient endurance. A God whose love endures. And so He endured the cross for us for all who would repent and believe, for all who would return to Him. He holds the door open because of who He is. He is a God of great mercy and grace and love.
God is a God who desires to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out the abundance of His goodness, His blessings on us. To shower humanity with His goodness. He is a God who is a God who blesses. And He is unchanging. This is the God we worship. This is the God before whom we live. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is a God who blesses? That He is good? Leads us to our fourth matter. His invitation is promise. God, in His amazing, persistent, enduring, gracious, merciful love, invites His people to return. Because He does not change, they are not destroyed. Because He does not change, we are not destroyed. He says to His people Israel, He says, return to Me and I will return to you. He holds open the door because of who He is, not because of their faithfulness. He invites them into a restored relationship with Him, into a relationship of love with Him, one that is anchored to the fact that He does not change. To know that He is the one who longs for them, that loves them, that He is the one who longs for them to know His goodness, His blessings. I I want you to hear, just listen to verse 11. This This is His promise. He invites them, return to Me, and I will return to you. And then He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in My house. Test Me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. God is a God who blesses, who delights in blessing His people. This language here, the floodgates of heaven, think in that agrarian culture where where there's drought, where there's inadequacy of rain. That that imagery speaks of just an abundance of rain, of provision. He he will prevent pests from destroying their crops. This is a picture of, of flourishing. God promises blessing. He invites them to obey. He invites them to walk with Him in this covenant relationship. And please, we need to understand this isn't this tit-for-tat kind of arrangement. I'll jump through this hoop. I'll give 10% so God will give me the stuff that I want. That's to miss the point. It's, it's not like that. God is inviting His people into a relationship of love to know Him, to, to delight in Him, to know that He delights in, in pouring His goodness into our lives, that He is a God who blesses. He's calling them back into a restored relationship of intimate love. To know Him and love Him and live in relationship with Him. Merely tithing is missing the point. It's just jumping through a hoop. And if you and I read this text and we come to the conclusion that that this is our ticket to get the stuff we really want, to get blessings, to get rich, I'll just give to God and then He'll give me the stuff I want then we are so wildly off what this text is about. Elizabeth Ackmeyer recounts in her commentary a story about a man in Dade County, Florida. True story. He took his church to court and sued them. This is what his court brief said. I delivered $800 of my savings to the church 
in response to the pastor's promise that blessings, benefits, and rewards would come to the person who did tithe 10% of his wealth. I did not and have not received these benefits. We chuckle. But if we think that way, that I'll jump through this hoop, I will obey God in this to get what I really want, then we're missing the point. God, who is full of grace, who is full of mercy, who is overwhelmingly good, who desires to bless, calls his people into a relationship of intimate love. God is not a vending machine. This passage is not some, here's three keys to how to manipulate God to get what you really want in life. This is an invitation to intimacy, a relationship of love with God. And just one quick note, this promise, we, we need to hear this, this promise is corporate, not individual. God says to Israel as a nation, come to me corporately, obey me in, in tithing, obey me in all the other things he's talking about too, obey me, walk in covenant relationship with me, and I will bless you as a people. You as a people, there will be an abundance so that no one goes without. This isn't a promise to every individual who gives that you're going to get there. Like that's thinking wrongly. This promise is corporate. Let's turn to the fifth, the fifth matter, and that is the result. What will the result be of obedience in this for Israel? The result will be the fulfillment of their mission. Remember, it is through them that God desires to bless all the nations of the earth. We can go back to Genesis 12 where God first called Abram and said, through you all the nations on the earth will be blessed. He said that to his people. His people are to be a nation of priests that through them the goodness, the mercy, the grace, the love of God will become known to all the nations. Listen to our text. Here's what we read in verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Obey me in this. Walk in this relationship of covenant love with me. And then all the nations will call you blessed. Israel in Malachi's day was a defeated, subjugated, thoroughly unimpressive remnant of a nation. A shadow of their former glory. Thoroughly unimpressive to any nation around them. And yet here, God's promise is that if they return, He will bless them with such abundance, He will shower them with His goodness, so that all the nations around them will see and will, will envy them in, in, in a positive way. They, they, will, they will desire what Israel has. They will, they will be drawn to Yahweh, the great King. All the nations will, will know that He is great. To call someone blessed is to extol or magnify another person, or in this case, another nation. And that's, that's the promise here. God will so bless Israel when they walk with Him. that The surrounding nations will recognize God's goodness, God's abundance, God's blessing, and they'll want to get in on it. And God's name will be great among the nations. When we walk faithfully with Jesus, in His grace... And please understand, God, who does not change, it is because of His mercy and His grace, not because we clean ourselves up, but because of His mercy and grace 
and His love for us that we stand. As we grow in Him, as we walk in obedience, God will so work in us. This might not look like material prosperity, but there will be a joy. There will be a peace. There will be, there will be a, a love in the church that, that the world will see and people will be drawn to God because God is present, because God is working here. That's the promise. So how ought we respond to this word from the Lord this morning? Remember the illustration I began with? This husband taking his wife out for a date. God does not want begrudging compliance. He wants us to see his heart. This is an amazing text. That, that, that this opens our eyes to see the great mercy, the great grace, the great love, the great goodness of God. It helps us to see that God is a God of blessing. He's a God who longs to bless His people, who longs to bless all the nations of the earth. He calls all to come to Him, to enter into covenant relationship, to receive His mercy, receive His grace, to receive His love, to receive His blessing. He calls us into that relationship to walk with Him. He wants us to see that He delights to bless and that He is a God who blesses and He wants us to love Him in return. And that means growing in obedience. Jesus, Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Christianity isn't about rule keeping, begrudgingly jumping through certain hoops because God somehow, he's, he's spoiling our fun. He doesn't want me to do this. He, he wants some of my money. He's, all this stuff that we got to do just to keep him off our case. Like, that's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, is knowing that the God of the universe loves you with an overwhelming love and mercy and grace that he is good and that he longs to bless you and that we would respond to that and surrender and love. So you ask, does God call us to tithe? I'm not going to give you a direct answer. I want to say this. God calls us to trust in His goodness. God calls us to recognize that, that He is a God who blesses. He calls us to respond to His love by loving Him and walking in intimate fellowship with Him. He calls us to obey Him out of gratitude, to delight in Him, that we would overflow with joy because of Him that would function magnetically drawing others to Him. Everything that we have, everything that we are, belongs to Him. And He calls us to give far more than a tithe. He calls us to give Him everything. Just as He and His Son has given us everything. Amen.